Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The idea that China engages in debt trap diplomacy is almost apocryphal. There is a persistent media narrative that China makes big infrastructure investments overseas as part of its Belt and Road Initiative, and when countries can't repay those loans, it seizes infrastructure. For example, in late 2021, there were both local and international media reports that China could seize the Entebbe airport in Uganda as collateral on a Chinese-financed loan to refurbish the airport. The story even made it to The Daily Show in an extended skit. The story was false, but yet another reflection of how ingrained the notion of China's debt trap diplomacy has become. My guest today, Deborah Brattigam, is the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She has done extensive research on Chinese-financed infrastructure investment projects in Asia and Africa, and has definitively shown that the narrative of China's debt trap diplomacy is a myth not supported by facts. We kick off discussing the origin of this myth which stems from media commentary around Chinese investment in a port in Sri Lanka. We then discuss other examples of the perpetuation of this myth, including a recent panic that the port of Mombasa was collateral for a major Chinese investment project in Kenya, the Standard Gauge Railway. We then discuss how, if not through the seizure of assets, China and other countries typically seek repayment for their loans. Uh, this is a great episode. It was recommended to me by a listener, so thank you for recommending this episode. And I, I will admit, before I encountered Deborah Brattigam's work, I too believed in that myth of China's debt trap diplomacy, but now after understanding her work and speaking with her, I have a far more nuanced understanding of these issues, as I'm sure you will too at the end of our interview. All right, now here is my conversation with Deborah Brattigam, the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The Hambantota port is a port along the southern coast of Sri Lanka. It's about 10 or so nautical miles from the main shipping lines that go through the Indian Ocean. And it's also the most undeveloped, the poorest part of Sri Lanka. So the Sri Lankan government has long wanted to 
boost economic development in that region. They've had a lot of different programs to do that. So the port was financed by the Chinese in 2008, and then a second phase was rolled out around 2012. And uh, around 2015, a new government came into power. And by that point, Sri Lanka was in trouble uh, in terms of debt. So there were they were looking at ways that they had taken out a lot of uh, loans from, from the Chinese for infrastructure, but they had taken out, even more importantly, they had issued bonds on the international capital markets. And those bonds were at quite high interest rates, and they're very unforgiving. When a bond payment has to be made, it has to be made. So they were, the, the new government came in facing this debt situation, and they were trying to figure out ways to deal with that. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to get rid of some of their um, state-owned investments, their state-owned enterprises. And one of them was this port. So the port was not profitable yet. Ports take quite a long time to become profitable. And this one had started in on its second phase too early. So that was one of the mistakes that the government made and the Chinese financiers as well. But uh, so it wasn't yet making enough money to repay the loans. And so the Sri Lankan government privatized it. Um, they offered a concession, two Chinese companies bid on it, and it was privatized. So that enabled them to shift some of the burden and then to bring in actually um, an influx of over a billion dollars in foreign exchange that they could use to make debt payments and not just to the Chinese, of course. And it was around this time that you began seeing articles about how like the Chinese had seized this port or one way or another assumed control of the port at the expense of Sri Lanka. But your research points to something much more nuanced and complicated. What did your research suggest what happened? Well, I think you're right that the, the story developed and it really developed in two phases. Uh, the first was there was an uh, Indian analyst, a pundit in New Delhi, who first uh, came up with this term debt trap diplomacy. And he didn't actually do any research on this. He just wrote an op-ed and he referred to this case in Sri Lanka along with several others. And he said that the Chinese had deliberately masterminded this for strategic advantage. But then what happened was that the New York Times wrote uh, an investigative study of this. And surprisingly, they got two things really wrong in that study. Um, and those are two of the most important uh, underpinnings of their, um, their proposition that this was an asset seizure. And the first thing that they said is right in the beginning of their article, they said that the port was judged not to be feasible. And so, and that's just not true. Uh, my colleague Meg Rithmeyer at Harvard Business School and I have done extensive research on this. Um, we It took us a year and a half to get the feasibility study that the Canadians had done, and it was judged to be feasible. We also saw the uh, feasibility study done by a Danish firm. It was also judged to be feasible. So that just wasn't true. And the second thing they said was that the port, that the loans from the Chinese started out to be cheap, and then they got more and more expensive, you know, like once they had... Uh, had uh, like a like a drug addict or something like that. Mm. And that's the opposite of what happened. The very first loan for the first phase of the port was at a commercial rate. And then the ones after that, including $800 million, were at a fixed rate of 2%. That's a concessional rate. So the, the loans got easier as the commercial um, feasibility of the port started to become more problematic because they had the Sri Lankan government decided to expand it too early. So, so what Meg and I did 
um, both of us knew something about this port. I knew something about it because a, a, a student I knew had been a summer intern um, on that port project. So she knew it quite well. And she uh, had, um, we had discussed this New York Times article, which ended up describing this as an asset seizure. And she said, you know, that's not at all what happened. The whole way that the project is described in that New York Times article is there's so many uh, errors in that. And Megan and I found the same thing. What you found, as you said earlier, is that they decided to privatize this port. They sold the the port's operation to uh, a Chinese company, and they used that money generated to pay off debts, but not debts to to the Chinese, debts to to bondholders, principally not in China, correct? Um, Yes, that's correct. So we don't know exactly what they did with that money because it went into the National Treasury of Sri Lanka. So that all of the money went into the National Treasury, and the National Treasury also took on the debt away from the Port Authority so that the Port Authority would be relieved of that responsibility. But the, it wasn't a debt equity swap. Many people have gotten that wrong as well. So it's still owned by Sri Lanka. And uh, I mean, it's, it's owned by a joint venture between the Chinese and the Sri Lankan Ports Authority, but the debt is owned by Sri Lanka. Nonetheless, this myth that the Sri Lankan port had been trapped by the Chinese, captured by the Chinese as part of like a nefarious diplomatic plot to you know seize assets as part of its Belt and Road initiative. The the that myth lived on. And more recently in 2018, there was new life given to this myth over the purported uh, leak of information regarding the terms of a deal between the Chinese and the port of Mombasa in Kenya, which is you know, by far the largest port in the region. Can you sort of explain what, what happened back in December 2018? Well, in December of 2018, um, a rumor began that Mombasa port had been used as collateral for the Chinese finance standard gauge railway. And uh, this is something that together with a team of of colleagues, including an international lawyer and a project finance specialist, we've dug into this rumor as well. But we and what we found was that this rumor originated in the leak uh, of a letter from the Auditor General's office. They were doing an audit of the Kenya Ports Authority. um, And they said in this audit that the Ports Authority was a borrower of this railway loan. And we thought that was very curious uh, and that therefore they were responsible for repaying the loan. And then they also said because the Ports Authority has signed a waiver of sovereign immunity, they that also means that their assets are pledged to guarantee this loan. And so we, and it wasn't terribly much information. It was just three pages of a letter that were leaked. And so we started doing we started teaching this case to try to figure out it was full of all of these complex terms. Um, And then we started diving into it more, and we were helped greatly by the release of the actual audit report, which was released uh, a couple of years after that letter. And and what the audit report did make clear was that the Auditor General did believe that the Ports Authority was a borrower. Why did he believe that? So it took us months to dig through all the documents to um, map these contractual structures. But what we found is that this was a very complicated project that the Ports Authority was connected to the project through what's called a take-or-pay agreement because the railway company in Kenya was loss-making. 
So the Chinese didn't want to finance this railway if the railway company was unprofitable. So they were looking for ways to ensure that the loan could be repaid. And so they did what's called credit enhancements. And one of them was they had this take or pay agreement with the Ports Authority, which owns Mombasa Port. And the agreement is that Mombasa Port agrees to to use the services of the railway to transport goods from Mombasa Port to Nairobi and beyond. And that they would agree every year to do for 15 years of the loan period to transport a certain minimum of cargo. And if they didn't transport that much, they would pay that equivalent fee. And so that's called a take or pay agreement. So that was one way that the um, fees, the uh, bankability of the project was enhanced. And the other way was through a 1.5% tax on all the imports coming into the port, into uh, Kenya in general. And that went into the railway development fund. So what the auditor general, because all of these parties, the railway corporation, the ports authority, the national treasury, they were all linked together in this in a number of different contracts. Um, So they all had to sign what's called a waiver of sovereign immunity, which is a a normal but complicated um, waiver that I had never heard of when I started doing this research. Yeah, can, can Can you just explain what we mean by sovereign immunity and why in a situation like this, a waiver would be a conventional thing to include in a contract? Yes, I'd be very happy to do that because uh, it is something that most people have never heard of. And what I found out is that it's absolutely standard um, in any commercial international loan contract because under international law, sovereign states have what's called immunity. They have immunity from being sued by other entities uh, and having to answer in the court of law. So it's uh, the, they've got immunity from the lawsuits and they also have immunity from enforcement. So even if you were to sue them and they didn't show up and, and you, you won by default, you couldn't then go to that country and then try to enforce your judgment and, and seize an asset, so to speak. So um, because they have this immunity, no bank will lend um, to a sovereign borrower unless they waive that sovereign immunity for the purposes of that particular loan. And like agree to go to arbitration or something like that. Exactly, exactly. So it enables arbitration to take place. And of course, you have to have that waiver before when the loan is signed, because you can't just bring it in later and say, oh, we're having a problem here. And now we've got to sort this out in an arbitration. And the government would just say, well, no, you know, we have sovereign immunity. We don't have to do that. So it has to be part of the loan contract. And it's absolutely standard. Germany does it. France does it. The UK does it. We do it. So that was nothing, um, nothing unusual. And a waiver of sovereign immunity, it mentions that the government and its assets are all, none of them will be held uh, immune from these um, court proceedings. Uh, but it doesn't mean that something is then therefore pledged as collateral. It's just a very general mm-hmm. waiver. And so the auditor general actually called that wrong. He was mistaken about the waiver. And he was also mistaken um, to say that the Ports Authority was a borrower because they had signed that waiver. And there's mm-hmm. a, a tiny clause in there that that uh, enabled us to just nail that fact that he had mistakenly um, thought the Ports Authority and the railway company were borrowers. And it was just on the basis of misreading. He misread one part of the contract. And, it, you know, it became like a whole kind of media and political brouhaha in, in Kenya for a while that, you know, the Kenyan government 
you know, it was erroneously believed had put up this extremely valuable port as collateral to the Chinese should the major investment in the standard gauge railway go awry somehow. That's absolutely right. And what's interesting to me is that it's, um, I really believe this was a contagion effect from the Sri Lanka case, because that idea was out there in 2018. It hadn't yet, you know, none of the research that has been done by myself, Meg Rithmeyer, and a number of other people who have actually done research on this, none of that was out yet. And so this was essentially unchallenged. And so that was, and it was certainly in Kenya, they were reading about these things. They were reading that their assets might be at risk from Chinese loans. So it was, uh, the idea was out there. And I'm sure the uh, auditor general, I wish I could interview him, but I'm sure that he was kind of infected by this contagious idea that was out, um, out and about. And that contagion spread to neighboring Uganda more recently over uh, an erroneous media report or in an erroneous media report that the airport in Entebbe, the main international airport uh, linking Uganda to the rest of the world, was put up as collateral for a major Chinese investment in the airport. And I mean, it was was wild to see how far that erroneous idea spread to the point where like the Daily Show did a whole long segment, you know, mocking and and exposing supposedly this, uh, this, this, this issue, this uh, around the Entebbe airport. That's absolutely right, Mark. So what happens is that, um, I, I think a, a journalist gets an idea uh, to do a study, uh, an article on this, or someone just writes an op-ed, which is what happened in the in the first instance in Sri Lanka with this Indian pundit, and that gets the first headline, and then all of the rest of it is catch-up. And so the government says, no, no, it's not collateral. The Chinese say there's no, it's not collateral, but that's all. It's like having a, a correction section once the first. Uh, headline is out there, then that's the one that just gets carried away. And so you have people on Capitol Hill saying that the Entebbe Airport, that the Chinese are seizing Entebbe Airport. So that's, you know, first of all, the loan, the project wasn't even finished when this article came out. There wasn't any, and then it has a five-year grace period. So it just wasn't even any question whatsoever of this. But again, it was this sovereign immunity waiver. That was uh, what they were concerned about. And my understanding with the Entebbe loan situation is that the the Chinese are financing an an expansion of the airport and that a certain percentage of profits from the airport are going into an escrow account and the Chinese get some like beneficial like priority in terms of how that money is dispersed from the escrow account. That's absolutely right. There's a repayment account um, and uh, there's also a sales collection account. There are two different accounts there. But the whole thing is, this is how international project finance works. And this is when we were looking at the case in Kenya, this is how our colleague who works, who does and and structures these kinds of deals was so helpful, because he kept saying over and over, this is just normal. These are gold standard uh, things that we ask for, you know, having an escrow account, having the profits from the, or the revenues from the airport go into the escrow account. Um, And other lawyers that I've consulted too that work in international project finance say over and over again, yes, this is how we do these deals. So if seizing like major infrastructure uh, as part of this nefarious debt trap scheme is not part of China's deliberate strategy in Africa and, and beyond, 
I'm interested to learn, you know, how does China and frankly, like the rest of the world approach a situation when a country is deeply in debt? And the case of Zambia, I know, is ongoing right now. The country, I think, is like $17 billion in uh, debt to external lenders, about one third of which is is to the Chinese. And the country is in seemingly in, in the midst of negotiations with these borrowers. Can you just explain that situation and more generally how countries, China specifically, approaches situations when a country cannot pay, repay its debts? Well, there are two answers to that. Um, the first is what have the Chinese done traditionally? And then what are the Chinese doing now? So traditionally, I'll say that what's happened is that the Chinese have extended the repayment terms. And so what's traditional for them to do, and we see a number of different cases over the past five years or so, we've seen this in Mozambique, we've seen it in Ethiopia, in Cameroon, in the Republic of Congo, they will uh, lengthen the repayment period. And in some instances, they've changed the interest rate, lowered the interest rate, um, but it's much more common just to leave the terms the same and then just give the country a longer period of time, perhaps a grace period where they don't have to make payments on the principal. So give them breathing room, but not to do what's called a haircut, which would be cutting the principal value of the loan. And so, so that's what they have traditionally done. Now, what's happening today is there, um, uh, in parallel with the Chinese, of course, there are other lenders and the other major bilateral creditors, official creditors, have traditionally joined in what's called the Paris Club. And they do these uh, debt negotiations together. And so it's all done transparently and they negotiate and give a haircut or not. Um, through these multilateral negotiations. So the Chinese have not become part of the Paris Club. So they've been do doing it all bilaterally and outside of that. Today, after the pandemic, there's a new uh, experiment, really. It's, a, it's called the Common Framework. And it's a combination of uh, the group of 20, the G20's uh, Debt Service Suspension Initiative. There are a number of poor countries that um, the G20 quickly negotiated a suspension of debt service from these the poorer countries in the world. There's 60-some or so. And so that was for a period up till the end of 2021. And then as part of the G20 negotiations, they came up with this idea of the common framework. So that would be the Paris Club and the non-Paris Club official lenders, bilateral lenders, the World Bank is not included. They're, they have not uh, offered to give any debt relief. So these uh, bilateral lenders were supposed to come together that are members of the G20 were com coming together in this common framework. So only three countries have applied for common framework treatment of their debts. And that's, um, we've had Chad, Ethiopia, and Zambia. So, and I think the other countries are just waiting to see what happens. Uh, and they're letting these countries go through the experience first. So then we get to Zambia. So what's happening with Zambia? Well, we've been following this very closely. And it's interesting that in Chad, it took about four months to get the common framework, the, uh, by the creditors committee together, and they negotiated um, a deal. But what happened then was that Chad was, has not yet been able to get commercial creditors. And these are oil traders and others who have lent to the government. They haven't yet joined in to provide, um, to see what kind of debt relief they're going to give. So that 
Chad situation is still on hold. Then in Ethiopia, they've been at war. This is basically in a civil war. So that hasn't moved forward. And, um, and that took about, let's say about eight to 10 months to get the creditors committee together. And it took 14 months uh, for Zambia to get the creditors committee together. So it's just, it's taken, it's been very, very slow. And, and I think China has joined this creditors committee. Is that right? They have said they're going to join. And my understanding is that not much has happened since then. Mm. That happened during the um, World Bank and IMF spring meetings. So they did mm. say they would join. And my sense of this is that it is that there is a lot going on in China. Um, Xi Jinping is facing, uh, he's standing for reappointment, which is even though the constitution or they've, they've agreed now that he can stand for a third term and maybe keep standing. It's still not sewn up. And so that's something that, you know, they're, they're like in an election season. So Mm -hmm. the fate of Zambia far away in Southern Africa is really not a priority. Mm. And I think that for, to do anything like a haircut, it's going to involve very high level decisions in China. It's uh, the banks don't want to do it, but it's going to have to be a higher up because they're going to have to be paid. So if they uh, do a haircut, someone's going to have to compensate them. So chances are uh, that this common framework will work up some sort of deal, you know, probably not to include a haircut, but, but who knows, but, you know, China is not going to like seize copper mines in, in Zambia. The point is rather China is kind of joining and doing what in normal circumstances, normal countries and, and, and lenders would do, which is try to renegotiate the terms of the loan. That's exactly right, Mark. And it's um, it's actually very difficult to seize assets inside a country. And you can just imagine that. How do you do it? You know, you have uh, uh, the Sri Lanka case we know was not an asset seizure. But if uh, the Chinese did want to seize assets, they would have to go through courts in a local country. They would have to, you know, it would have had to be a court case outside. It's just it's very uh, unlikely uh, that that could ever be politically feasible. And the optics of it are, even though they've been accused of this and, and basically convicted in the court of public international public opinion, um, to actually do this is is really highly unlikely. So, is there anything just unique or uncommon about how China tries to go after its debts, either in Africa or in other uh, places that it's lent along the Belt and Road Initiative, and in other countries in Asia or or elsewhere? I think what's Unusual is that they do it um, bilaterally and they they negotiate it. There can be a lot of different outcomes. So there's no one size fits all. There's no um, standard pattern of how they do this. But it's also unusual that I don't think um, for sovereign debt, I don't know of any instances where they, they have gone to arbitration. You know, these loan contracts all say the waiver of sovereign immunity, they can go to arbitration, but I don't think they do it. Or there are very few cases in which they do it. I think a lawyer colleague of mine told me that there were a dozen or so cases that that she had seen, but those might have been private. Um, We do know that they go after private borrowers. There's a case in India where a a magnet million billionaire had borrowed from a Chinese bank and didn't repay. And so they went after him in the courts. But in terms of sovereign borrowers, they don't. And this is unlike uh, Western lenders. There's a case that I've been following in Zimbabwe where a German bank that's owned by the German government, KFW, 
went after um, Zimbabwe for not paying loans for a, a number. There were about five different loans. And so they got a judgment through this arbitration process. And then they uh, hired a collection agency in Singapore to go after the Zimbabwe government. And so this collection agency was running around Southern Africa trying to find properties that the Zimbabwe government owned so they might be able to attach them uh, to enforce this judgment. And so that was different. We don't see any examples of the Chinese doing that. But what was so interesting to me in Sri Lanka was that um, the first feasibility study that was done for this by the Canadians said that uh, that Sri Lanka should use, uh, they should have a private consortium build that project. It should be a joint venture and it should be a, a build, own, operate, transfer project in which a company receives a contract, does a gets support up and running, and then operates it for a number of years and then turns it back to the port. And essentially, that's what they have now with the Chinese. And that's what the Canadians had recommended long ago. So they kind of went back to the uh, the proposal that was um, the feasibility study that was done 20 years ago. So really, this is all a nefarious Canadian plot. <laughs> well, it is ironic, isn't it? And it's also interesting that the Canadians were pushing so hard for this project because they thought the French were going to get it. So <laughs> it was um, all different actors in those days. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and for your very helpful research. This is great. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm always uh, glad to talk to people about it. All right. Big thank you to Deborah Brochigam. That was great. And as I mentioned at the outset of this conversation, this episode was recommended to me by a listener. And that recommendation led me to the excellent podcast, China in Africa which is part of the SupChina Network. And there is an episode of that excellent podcast dedicated to the Port of Mombasa myth and Deborah Brattigam and her team's deep research exposing what was really in that complex infrastructure investment deal. It was fascinating stuff. Again, highly recommend the China in Africa podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.